This is a fascinating passage of Scripture, and the more I delved into it, the longer my sermon got, because there's so much here that doesn't meet the eye initially, but powerful truth for our lives today, tucked into these 12 verses in James chapter 5. Let's try to go back to those days. Try to think of what it was like when James wrote these words. In those days, there was a great gulf between the rich and the poor. In many nations of the earth, that is still the case. There is not what we know of in the United States as the middle class. The middle class in America is the largest class of people there is in our society. But there, and in other places even today, there is not a middle class. It's rich or poor. I noted that when I went to India years ago, and I have noted it in other countries that I have had the privilege to visit. The gospel was appealing to the poor, while the rich rejected Christ with few exceptions. It's important to think about that as you read this text. And what happened was that the rich then began to oppress the poor Christians. And as a result, you have the verses that we have read from James 5. The rich oppressing the poor Christians. And the poor Christians were not retaliating, as was correct and right. Now, it's important, and I underline the word important, to realize that we're not condemning riches, nor was James condemning people because of their riches. That's not the point of the text. They were not being condemned because of their riches. Now, if you miss that, you will misinterpret everything that I'm going to say. Why, then, this passage, because they were gaining their prosperity through oppression. The Bible does not condemn wealth as such, but rather insists on the responsibility of wealth, as well as the perils which surround a person blessed with this world's goods. Now, please get these things clearly in focus. James is not condemning them because of their riches. He is speaking out of his heart, anointed by the Holy Spirit, because they were gaining their prosperity through oppression. Also, warning them of the perils that would surround them as they got more prosperous in their life. Now, the major purpose of this passage seems to me to be a reminder to all that to place all our hopes and aims and desires on earthly things is but to face a horrible judgment. That's why in the early going, James says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming Upon you, the weeping and the wailing would be the result of realizing that if you put every hope 
and every aspiration in things, one day you're going to face the terror of judgment. That's the last word of this entire passage. If you look at verse 12, the last word is the word judgment. That's the importance of the passage. That as things improve in life, the tendency is to draw away from the giver of all good gifts. And we must realize that judgment is facing us if we do not keep things in proper perspective. Now, God is absolutely correct and accurate in his pronouncements. When he speaks strongly on the issue of riches, it is because he means it and because he cares about the outcome of every one of us. We today have every day coming our way weather forecasts, and everybody grabs a newspaper to see what the weather is going to be like or turns on the weather channel. In the cable system, we have the weather channel. And you can, at any hour, any moment of the day, find out what the weather is all over the United States, if not the world. It's become a very popular part of television broadcasting. Men and women make large sums of money just coming on TV broadcasting the weather. Perhaps our inability to believe the accuracy of God's pronouncements is due to that emphasis day by day. Someone said that probably the last completely accurate weather forecast was when God told Noah there was a 100% chance of rain. We get these pronouncements all the time that don't always turn out the way we hear them. But I'm here to tell you You've got to break out of that if you're going to get anything out of church this morning because God's forecasts are accurate, 100%. God's forecasts are true. Therefore, this is a passage for today, not just when James wrote it, but for today, and it speaks to us in the 20th century strongly and powerfully about our lifestyle. So, I have two points. There is in this passage a message to the oppressor. And there is a message to the oppressed. It's twofold. A message to the oppressor, verses 1 through 6, and then a message to the oppressed, verses 7 through 12. Number one, under a message to the oppressor, James talks about their sources of wealth. This is part of the investigation that brings tremendous light to our minds and spirits. Where did their wealth come from? James intimates that, first of all, it came from corn and grain. In other words, it came from the earth. He said, your riches are corrupted. Now, what could that mean? It means that their crops had gone rotten, that there was decay, they had not served God with what he had blessed them with. So, James says, your riches are turning to rot, turning to decay. You will see your field literally destroyed by rot and decay. Your barns that are filled with plenty will be filled with rot 
and be filled with ruin because you have forgotten the source of the blessing. That's number one, corn and grain. Number two had to do with garments or clothing, which is always in the East a sign of wealth. Their garments, verse 2 says, are moth-eaten. This is a word to the oppressor. Now get this. I couldn't help but think of today's society where fashion is such an important part of what we do day by day. Now some of you could care less about fashion. There are others that put it so high on their priority list that they don't have anything left for God. And that's the danger. And that's why James says, your garments are moth-eaten. And to the person who makes fashion his God, what a tragedy to have it all eaten by moths. But that's what was happening to the rich. Now, there are many examples in Scripture of how garments or clothing was important and a sign of wealth. In Genesis 45, verse 22, Joseph gave changes of raiment to his brothers when they came into Egypt, where now he was the potentate. He gave them changes of garments, sign of wealth. Achan, in Joshua chapter 7, when God had told them not to take anything from Jericho, Achan brought judgment on the nation because of a beautiful Babylonian garment. Joshua 7, verse 21. It was not only the gold and the silver that appealed to him, but it was the beautiful garments that spoke of wealth and prosperity to Achan. And he buried it in his tent, you remember. And the people went out to battle Ai, and they were horribly defeated when they should have been victorious. And God told Joshua to get up off of his knees, stop his praying, and go out into the camp and find the sin and root it out. And it was in Achan's tent. Babylonian garment. Samson, when he issued his riddle, you will recall, to the Philistines, promised 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing to the one who could solve his riddle. The sign of wealth. The king of Syria tried to impress the king of Israel for the healing of Naaman, his leading soldier, by sending 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And when Naaman tried to give these gifts to Elisha, following the healing in the river, Elisha refused them. But Gehazi, his servant, heard the offer and pursued Naaman with a lie, saying, Just now, just after you left, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. You see, Gehazi saw this as an opportunity to look like a wealthy man to the community. But the Bible says 
In chapter 5, verse 22 of 2 Kings, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. That word judgment again at the end of verse 12 comes into play. Now Paul said something in Acts 20, 33 that maybe you have not taken note of. Before the Ephesian elders, Paul said that I coveted no one silver or gold or apparel. And Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Matthew 6, 19, the Sermon on the Mount. Why did he put in there moth? Because he was referring to their garments. A sign of wealth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures that moth can destroy. Food for moths, in God's eyes, is often what we place so much importance in that it controls us and motivates us and we become the oppressor because we've been blessed and forget where the blessing comes from and that we're to use it for the glory of God. If the Christians of America would just clean out their closets, every vagabond on the street would have a wardrobe sufficient to take care of his needs for the next 12 months. But we hoard it, and we place great importance in it, and we spend great amounts of time getting it all lined up so that we will look to the public as though we have climbed that ladder of success and we're to be something special in the community. Why did Job's wife, not Job, Lot's wife, look back when they came out of the cities of the plain because she had garments and she had trinkets back there in Sodom and Gomorrah. They had risen to the elite in the societal ladder of those cities and she could not think of leaving them behind when she had been told not to look back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. The word is judgment. Judgment. Using wrongly the blessings that flow from a beneficent, loving, heavenly father. He moves from garments to gold and silver in the passage that we are in this morning. Your gold and silver are corroded Now, that's interesting because gold and silver are supposed to be non-corrodible. Why would the Holy Spirit through James say that your gold and silver is corroded with rust? That's an interesting statement because gold and silver do not rust. That makes it worth investigating. What is he trying to say? It's a warning. Emphatic warning that even the most apparently indestructible and precious things of this life are doomed to decay under the word judgment. Even that which isn't supposed to decay will decay. Even that which isn't supposed to rust will rust. It will turn to nothing under the judgment of God. So Paul recounted in Philippians 3 his pedigree and accomplishments only to conclude by saying, 
I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He understood. Whatever I have been blessed with, all of this education, all of these things that have come my way, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. I get rid of them that I may know Christ. Is that where your heart is? These are the things that they dealt with and they still deal with today. Now, we move to the oppressor's basic sins. What was the problem with these rich? Why was all of this happening to their gold and silver and their garments and their crops? Well, read it in verse 3. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. What does that mean? You have hoarded. You have hoarded in the last days. In other words, God is asking you and he's asking me, what is this for that I have given you? Why have I given you the blessings of life? Why do I bestow upon you daily bread, transportation, food, clothing, housing, all of the rest? Why do I give it to you? It is not to hoard, it is to use. It's always amazing to me that people will buy very expensive houses and two people will live in there and never let anybody else come in. No, we don't want to entertain because we have too many nice things. We don't want to mess up our new carpets. We don't want to touch the hardwood floors. It's too hard to get them back to normal. Isn't that amazing that we have these things and cannot enjoy them? We hoard them as though they were going to be ours forever. They will not be. They were hoarding rather than using. I wish I could stop there and say that was the end of it, but that wasn't the end. Verse 4 says, The wages of laborers who mowed your fields you've kept back by fraud. Stealing is the word we will understand this by. They were stealing from those who worked for them. Now it says money talks. Indeed it does. It talked to the God, the Lord of Sabaoth. Notice, the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. What does that term mean? It means the Lord of the armies. It's his battle name. And when you think about it, what it means is that God is coming against this sin of stealing. It is referred to often as the Lord of hosts. I'm glad to be on his side when I read this passage in James. It's come to the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You've lived in pleasure and luxury, but judgment is going to reach you because you are stealing from those who are doing your work. You are gaining wealth at their expense. Now, do I need to make application to that in this time? People who build businesses at the expense of others, they won't pay a proper wage. They're always trying to get more out of those who are under them rather than blessing them, rather than encouraging them, rather than sharing with them the blessings of that organization or that company or that piece of goods. The world is filled with it today, just as it was when James 
was writing to these early believers. Let's be careful about that, friend. Wages which you have kept back by fraud. There was a third problem, and it was extravagant living. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. God is not against the blessings of life. There are too many promises in the Bible to think otherwise, such as Genesis 39, 3, when it says of Joseph, God made all he did to prosper. The blessing of God is rich and adds no sorrow with it. God is not against the blessings of this life. Mark that down. But he is against using it wrongly. Second Chronicles 26.5 says of Uzziah, he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem and as long as he sought the Lord. God made him to prosper. 52 years of prosperity as Uzziah sought the Lord. You see, when you're seeking the Lord, that's the result. You prosper, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's what you do with it. Psalm 22, 6, in praying for the peace of Jerusalem, there is a prayer for prosperity to those who love Jerusalem. Interesting. I guess we need to hear that today as the Middle East heats up. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and with that prayer comes a promise of prosperity to the prayer. 3 John 2, John said, I pray that you may prosper. If it's against God's will, then why would John say, I pray that you may prosper? You see, I pray that way too. Every time the offering is received and we are blessing the offering and asking God to use it and praying for people who need work and their jobs to be blessed and their businesses to be blessed, I am praying, oh God, Prosper this congregation. Why, Lord, that we may touch this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I want you to prosper. That you can give. That you can invest in souls. That you can support missionaries and works that need to be done in the name of the Lord. That's why we ought to pray, God, help us to prosper. That we may prosper your work. Not spend it in extravagant living. In fact, as I examined the text, it was interesting that James says you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. They're compared in the text to cattle who are feeding themselves without restraint, not realizing that they're on their way to the slaughterhouse. They're living in luxury. The fields are green. They're just filling their bellies with all of the goodness of the field, and they don't realize they're on their way to the meat market. That's what that verse means. You're living extravagantly. You have your summer house and your winter house, and you have this toy and that toy, but you've forgotten judgment. It's like cattle feeding, not knowing where they're going. And there's one final basic sin of the oppressor, and it's injustice, taking advantage of power to abuse and kill the poor. That's what they were doing. And the poor did not resist. That's what verse 6 means when it says, He does not resist you. They were not fighting back. 
You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and the just do not resist you. They were following an example set forth by Jesus himself who did not resist, but yielded himself to the will of the Father and left his future in God's hands. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. These Christians, these poor Christians, were doing the same thing. They were trusting themselves into God's hands. Now that whole section has to do with the oppressor. Now the next section deals with the oppressed. There's a series of remembers here. Remember the blessed hope. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. That's a wonderful word. I don't care what strata you're in. doesn't matter to me. That's a wonderful word. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, more and more people are asking me, what about the future? What does all that is happening out there have to do with my tomorrow? I can't answer that totally. I can tell you biblically and prophetically what I believe is ahead. But I can tell you this emphatically. Be patient under the coming of the Lord. Don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. I can tell you that. You don't need to lay awake at night. You don't even need to stay up for the last news report to see if you're going to have a peaceful night or not. Go to sleep. Put yourself in God's hands. That's what these folk were doing. They put themselves in God's hands. They did not resist. And that's a word for us today. Our doctrinal statement goes like this. The resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ and their translation, together with those who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord, is the imminent and blessed hope of the church. Our address is not always what it is today. We're on our way somewhere. We're going to a kingdom and a city whose builder and maker is God. And friends, in that moment, all wrongs will be righted. All oppression will cease. Everything will be made right. So don't sweat it. Don't get all uptight. Everything is in God's hands. He is sovereign, and he is sovereignly controlling the affairs of your life and the affairs of mine. Thank God for these who are oppressed, who did not fight back. They submitted themselves to the will of God. They do not resist you because they put themselves in God's hands. Remember the coming of the Lord. The second, remember, remember the farmer. You notice that? Remember the farmer in verse number nine. It's in verse number seven, excuse me. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You're to remember the coming of the Lord. You're to remember the farmer. He plants the seed. He prepares the soil. But he does not reap a crop immediately. God sends the rain. Man can control that. And he says... The early in the latter, the early rain is October, November. The latter rain is April, May. Both important to crops, and in due season, Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, you will reap if you do not think. Remember the farmer who plants crops, 
He waits, he watches, he does everything he can, but you know, when it's all said and done, he cannot bring the crop into existence. There must be rain, there must be certain amounts of warmth from the sun, there are certain conditions that that soil has to meet and the seed has to meet before there can be the blessing of the crop. And so remember the farmer. You don't always the next morning see the results. You wait patiently, just as a farmer for the crop. Thirdly, he says, remember the judge. Remember the judge. Behold, the judge, verse 9, is standing at the door. Some of the trials were making the Christians critical, evidently. Some of them were complaining. The message to them was, do not fret. Do not worry and do not judge, for the judge is standing at the door. He hears what is said. He sees what is going on, and he will come quickly to make things right. That's what that verse is about. Remember the judge. He's the final voice. He's the final authority. Don't judge. Don't get critical. Don't get complaining. That's the tendency right now with government. I'm saying to you, church, you don't have that right. Under God, you don't have that right. You pray for those who are in authority and you relax and remember that the judge is standing at the door. He will make things right. He's the one with whom you will have to do. Remember that. Don't spread around the venom that so many spread through their letters to the editor and all of the things that are being written and all the things that are being said. Just ask somebody who wants to do that. Have you prayed for them today? Have you asked God to give them wisdom today? Do not judge. Do not enter into a complaining spirit. Even when you drive up to the gas pump, smile. And there is one more, remember, and that is remember the prophets, verse 10. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Have you remembered the prophets? They suffered for the Lord. Job is the prime example. God had a purpose in mind. Job was an example of affliction, but also of patience. And what was the conclusion of Job? But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. Wow. Remember the prophets. Notice verse 11. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Isn't that great? That's how that verse ends after mentioning Job. The old King James says the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. It reminds me of Romans 8. All things work together for good to those that love the Lord. All things. Not some things, but all things. So the message to those who are oppressed was to remember. Remember the coming of the Lord. Remember the farmer. Remember the judge. Remember the prophets. It's all going to turn out. And there's one more remember. Remember to keep control of your tongue. Do not swear. That doesn't mean curse. It has another meaning than that. Either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Where did that come from? It came from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. You want to look at it? It's right there in 
that first chapter where Jesus spoke to the people. Verse 31, or verse 33, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Would you explain that to me, please? All right, I will. Jesus taught what James repeats in this fifth chapter. It is not a reference to bad language, but to the fact that a Christian should be of such noble character that it should never be necessary for him to be put under oath. That's what it means. Your character should be such in the earth that you should never have to swear by anything, but people would know that your yes was yes and your no was no, and there'd never be anything in between. Wow. A normal part of making money today is making your yes no and your no yes. That's what was the problem in that day. It has not changed. I receive Christianity today regularly, and I read with interest the editorial by Kenneth Cancer just the other day, it's the October the 8th issue, where he said the most serious problem facing today's church is not liberalism or wrong views of revelation and inspiration, or other controversial points in theology, nor is it the sociological problems that capture a great deal of attention today. The most serious problem is materialism. He says, to profess Christianity and follow a materialistic lifestyle does not appear to be absurd. It seems to be normal church life and is indeed extraordinarily respectable. That, he said, is the most serious problem facing today's church. Friends, that's challenging. It's powerful. God blesses us to touch the world. That's the essence of this passage. That's the essence of my message. That's the feel of my soul today. God blesses us to touch the world. Not to heap it on ourselves. Not to oppress others with our blessings but to give it out and to share it with a world that is in need of the touch of Christians whose yes is yes, whose no is no, whose life is above board, who are truly bearing the spirit of Jesus to a world that does not see it very often. That's my challenge to you today, to this body today. There have been many reminders in recent days of the danger of riches and the danger of materialism, even from a church standpoint. We have seen failures on many sides. And the name Jim Baker, one of my colleagues in the ministry, is a prime example of what can happen when you lose your bearings. It just so happens that he got caught and some of the rest have not some who are sitting in the pews of the churches today who have not been caught or just as guilty according to the biblical standards, just as guilty. 
I have a very close friend that visited Jim Baker just the other day. Spent the whole day with him in the prison in Minnesota. He said it was so interesting because they had to spend the whole day in this little compound where they had to eat from vending machines. And of course, my friend had to provide the money because the prisoners don't have any money to even buy a sandwich or a drink from the vending machine. It has to come from the visitor. That's pretty well reducing yourself to nothing, isn't it? And Jim Baker is paying his debt, you know, at $100 a month on debts over $500,000, most of it fines. 45-year term at the Federal Medical Center in Rochester, Minnesota. He gets the money to make the monthly payments from family and followers, as well as from his 11-cent-an-hour job cleaning toilets. You'd probably like to know how Jim is doing. He's doing very well. My friend said to me this week, Glenn, Jim Baker said to me, I've learned so much. He said, when I get out of here, I am really going to be a minister of God. I have learned so much. Isn't it sad that we have to learn the hard way by judgment when we can't handle the blessing and we turn it into oppression and judgment rather than to use it to the glory of God to touch the world? There is danger in riches. Let us never be the oppressor. God will use us as we yield everything to him everything to him. Some of you have never entered into the tithe that you're supposed to give to the Lord, pay to the Lord. It's like a debt you owe. It's the Lord's tithe, Malachi reminds us. It's not yours. A tenth is the Lord's. It's his. And you're being oppressed because you can't by faith say, God, this is yours. I give it to you gladly and I offer to you everything else I have because I'm a steward. I'm a steward of it all. I want to use it well. Everything you've given me, it's given me to use to the glory of God to build your kingdom on earth. I gladly share it, Lord. The American church, if it does not respond to James chapter 5, is going to face a terrible judgment before God someday. The last word of that section is judgment. I challenge you, young men, young women, I challenge you, business people, I challenge you, hourly wage earners, I challenge you who do not have employment to today do what Jesus encouraged us in the Sermon on the Mount to put him first in everything, and all these things will be added unto us. Put him first in everything. Put him first in everything. There is danger in riches, and the dangers get greater and greater and greater. And as the pressure of economy gets greater, our tendency will be, oh, I better guard this, I better guard that. No, sir, the way is to give it away to the glory of God and trust him with everything. Not to hoard it. That's what they did and came under the judgment of God. Not to think that tomorrow will be better and they'll put up their treasures and build greater barns when Jesus says, Thou fool, you've forgotten that tonight your soul may be required of you. I had a preacher say in the pulpit of my home church years ago something I never forgot. He said, When Jesus comes for me, 
I don't want a dime left in any account. I want it to be used for the glory of God. Now that doesn't mean you're not supposed to look for those who are in your care for the future. There are other passages that say if you don't provide for your own, you're worse than an infidel. So you've got to put it all together to make sense. And in this capsule form, this is what makes sense. Use what God gives to you for the glory of his name. Don't hoard it. Don't be wasteful with it. Don't get extravagant in your living. That was a challenge to those believers. Live below your ability is what the Christian ought to do. So that he can always have freedom to give to the work of God and to winning souls. He always be able to invest because he's never extended himself to the limits. He's always living below his opportunity. That's the challenge of the message today. Please, let the Holy Spirit take it and use it in your life so that we as a congregation may bless and reach out and not be cursed. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is a passage of Scripture that we do not hear from very often, but there is necessity of hearing it today. Lord, may it not only be heard by our physical ears, but may it be heard by our spiritual ears. And may we say, as we look around us, what am I doing? to bring this world to Christ before Jesus returns and before I stand at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of my life. I pray, O oh God, you will help us in this fellowship today to hear the word of the Lord. God, if there are those here who have been oppressing others when they should be blessing others, I pray that you will loose them Help them to become a great giver rather than a getter.